0: Hey, this is Dave Ryder from Newspring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Good morning, church. Good morning, Brett. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brett. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Okay, man, how good has it been this morning? Wow, feels... Next level, but I don't know if that's just my nerves and I'm <laughs> misreading the mood. Um, okay, so for those of you who have been in this church for a little while now, or at least the last few months at least, is that we've been going through the book of Mark. And today, well this morning, we find ourselves at the end of chapter four. So we've been going through since sort of February. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, man. Come on. (laughs) So we find ourselves at the end of chapter four. So today we're going to be going through chapter four, verse thirty-five to forty-one. But although it's the end of the chapter, we're actually find ourselves at quite a significant point um, in sort of the narrative arc of where Mark is at the moment. And so what I'm going to do at the start here is we're just going to pause for a second, instead before we get into the text. We're just going to land ourselves in sort of the context of where we are, okay? So what, from Mark chapter 1, sort of 23, through to Mark 3, about 3 to 12, Mark, it's quite a rapid set of events that Mark is building towards, okay? So there's lots of stories depicting Jesus who has authority in a variety of public settings, But we don't actually hear a lot of context. We actually don't hear a lot of detail around those um, incidences. So it's, um, you know, there's a paraplegic or a leper and and Jesus heals him and then we move straight on. So it's this series of rapid events that happen. From Mark 13 through to Mark uh, 4, sorry, Mark 3.13 through to Mark 3.34, what Dave took us to last week, is that... It's focusing on Jesus' authority yet again, but it sort of he brings it Mark brings it in just a bit, and it's in his authority in respect to his followers. And so we're looking at it with the twelve disciples, with some associates, with his family members. So and the story though is still quite at a rapid pace. Okay, Mark then starts having Jesus speak in parables, talking about what the kingdom of God is like. And there are two prominent themes in this sort of section that Mark is having. And the first one, as I just said, is the kingdom of God. And so he's starting to develop what the kingdom of God is. And he's using it as the kingdom of God is like a sower in a field. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. There's something going on here that doesn't look like you expect it's going to look. It looks different from what you're expecting. He's starting to build something about what the kingdom of God is. The other theme that Mark is developing here is this difference between insiders and outsiders. And it has everything to do with hearing the word. And so those who hear the word and those who understand or have some sort of understanding of what the word is, are insiders. And we know that by Jesus saying at the end of his his parables, going, you know, those who have here, let them live here. And that's pretty much Jesus saying, you know what, this is what the kingdom of God's like. And if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, you don't. And those who don't, sort of walk away confused. And they're like, what what was all that about? The meaning was opaque. They can't see. And so they are the outsiders. And so as Mark is developing what these insiders are, and so those who are insiders, more will be given to them. And so that's when Jesus takes away his disciples and says, you know this parable that I was talking about? This is what it actually means. And then as Dave spoke last week, that as he's developing these themes, that those who understand, more will be given. More understanding, deeper revelation of who God is. So as we move forward now from Mark 35 into pretty much the end of chapter 6, the story now slows down quite a lot. The stories get more detailed we find out about what's happening to the characters in these stories that are having an interaction with who Jesus is. And so this, and the stories are told through miracles, pretty much. And as they're going through that, the miracles are becoming more spectacular. And, but the focus remains on who Jesus is, not the miracles in and of themselves. Okay. And there are sort of two main sort of themes that are coming up right now. And the first theme is the development, a further development of what the kingdom of God is. And yet again, eyes to see, because it's not necessarily explicit. So as we go through these next sort of chapters in Mark, don't worry, we're only going to do one little bit today. We're not going to go through the next few chapters. Let's just have a look very briefly at how he's developing this, because it's important for where we're about to go over the next couple of weeks. So, chapter 4, verse 35 to 41 that we're going to do today. Jesus calms a storm. So when we start looking at what the storm means in the ancient, we're not going to go there just yet. So the ancient Near Eastern world viewed seas and the water as a place where evil and chaos reign. So when we start to look at that Jesus calms the storm, he's showing us that in the kingdom of God, There is no evil and chaos. Jesus heals... And although I'm back, just in case, I keep wearing it out. Um, In chapter 5, verse 1 to 20, Jesus heals a a demon-possessed man. It's telling us that in the kingdom of God, there is no bondage. Jesus heals... A lady who is hemorrhaging and who has been doing so for 12 years. In the kingdom of God, there is no sickness. Jesus raises a child from the dead. In the kingdom of God, there is no death. Jesus feeds the 5,000. In the kingdom of God, there is no hunger. Jesus walks on water. In the kingdom of God, we are a new creation. And our bodies will be different from what they are now. Another theme that Mark is developing is a contrast between faith and fear. And the faith and fear that we are, he's contrasting is driven by a sense of desperation. These same stories that I've just talked about, about the kingdom of God, all have people in them who are desperate. And each of them has a choice between faith and fear. And it's another development of those who are insiders and those who are outsiders. So when we look at the disciples in the storm are desperate. They think they're going to die. And Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. They're fearful. The demon-possessed man is desperate in his own situation. He's beaten and he's chained and he bruises himself with stones to purge himself of what's inside of his possession. The legion that's actually possessing him is desperate. And when they see Jesus coming, in their desperation, they run to him and say, like, don't, don't expel us from this man. And also in that same story, the townsfolk are desperate. And they have a choice of are they going to accept what they're seeing in faith, or are they going to respond in fear? They respond in fear and tell Jesus to go away. So he does. The father is desperate for his daughter to live. And he goes to Jesus with faith. And when Jesus actually ends up at the the, the house, they're all going, you know, how can this possibly be? You know, and Jesus tells the ruler of the synagogue and those standing by not to fear about the news of his daughter's death. The woman who is hemorrhaging and has been is desperate to be healed. And she reaches out in faith and touches his cloak. And when Jesus points her out and is like, who touched me? And she's terrified that she's going to be exposed and ridiculed. But Jesus turns to her and says, daughter, your faith has healed you. And even when Jesus goes home and he's speaking to the people who know who he is, know his family, and they're like, man, this is amazing, but like, isn't this Joseph's boy? And they respond out of fear and Jesus goes to them and he, was, and he actually is amazed and marvels at their lack of faith and in that town he can't produce any miracles. And so the whole theme that he's, Mark is developing here is that those most open to receiving God's power are those who were desperate enough to seek it. Mm-hmm. And so when faith, that we when we seek Christ in faith, that's when it flings open the gates to receiving his power. But let's get into the text. So as I said, we're in Mark 4, chapter 35, 41. I'm actually reading from a slightly different version than this, so I hope you're following along. I'm reading from the NASB. So 35, on that day, when Jesus came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. The other boats were with him, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Then who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now when you're reading a story like this you need to come at it from a couple of di- with a couple of different questions in mind. So the first question is what does this story tell us about Jesus? The second question is what does this story tell us about the human condition? And the third question is how does this or what solution does this story give us to that condition? Now this is a pretty well-traversed path when it comes to the second two questions about what does it say about the human condition and what solutions does it have, and it goes something like this. So this tells us the passage that there are storms in life, that there are powers and chaoses that seek to destroy us, and the solution to this condition is being courageous and having faith in God's deliverance, regardless of what's happening around us, Mm -hmm. that we can sleep securely in the Lord. Now, that's 100% correct. I 100% agree with that. But the problem is, because that's such a well-worn path, we jump to that conclusion pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. The thing is, that most people are exactly like the disciples in this story. That they actually don't know who the person is who's in the boat with them. And when, they, when crisis comes, they don't know where to go. And so we are now, this morning, I'm not actually going to travel down the road of, this is what we're going to do and this is how you, you know, life's a boat. I don't mean that jokingly. But we're going to actually look at the person of Jesus that this story introduces us to. Because if we focus on him and seek his kingdom first, then everything else is gravy. It's all downstream from there. So let's go there. How am I going? I need to to get my skates on. All right. Okay. So, the obvious thing when we're going to start off is the setting, okay? They're in a boat. I'm on a boat. I'm on a boat. And so, <laughs> there's a couple of different symbolistic sort of tools that you can draw from this. There's three main ones that I found, at least, anyway. So, the first one is the boat represents the church, okay? Obviously, this is post writing. And the ship is a ship of faith. And those inside the ship or the boat are sailing with the Lord through the wind-tossed waves of life, which sort of falls into the definitions of what does this tell us about the human condition, right? The second symbolism that we can find from the Jewish Scriptures is about salvation, that the boat represents Noah's Ark or something similar, that it is a boat that those who are in are saved, and those who aren't will perish. The third symbol we can draw from this, Jonah. (laughs) Who was an Israelite prophet. a Gentile nation, who was sent to a Gentile nation. So if you just don't know the Jonah story, let me just briefly tell you about it. Now, I'm not the type of person who can remember scripture. This is obviously ad lib, okay? So don't go back and say, where's that in the Bible? Okay, right. Okay. So Jonah is a prophet of God, and he is asked to go and prophesy and preach to a city of called Nineveh. Now, by all accounts from historical evidence that Nineveh was actually quite a decrepit city, okay? Pretty much evil and horrible beyond we can ever possibly imagine. And so, as a prophet of God, he went, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. (laughs) And so, he actually scarpers in the exact opposite direction. He gets to the shore in a city called Joppa and went, no, I'm not far enough. Gets in a boat I'm going to Tarshish, which, if you look on a map, is pretty much the exact opposite direction as far as you can get from Nineveh. He's in the boat. He's asleep. The storm comes up. The captain wakes him and was like, "Strife here, mate." And he goes, "Okay." And they go, "Well," and they sort of cast lots and go, "Like, what's happening? Who, like, who's causing this?" And he goes. Oh, I think it's me. Um, I'm running from God. And the only way that you can solve this is to hoik me out, out over the edge. And they go, no, 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 you're sweet. We'll just try and row back to shore. Waves come up even further. And they sort of look at him and go, actually, yeah, and I'll it goes. <laughs> and so when he does that, right. the, the storm calms. Big fish comes and eats him. He's in the fish for three, night, three days. It's, he prays, spits him out on land. He then goes to Nineveh. He preaches to Nineveh and prophesies over them, and the entire city is saved. They repent. It's exactly what he didn't want to happen, but it happens. <laughs> okay, so let's have a look at some of the parallels. Jonah is sleeping in a boat during a storm. Jesus is sleeping in a boat during a storm he's woken up and by people who are in fear for their lives and the calming of the storm happens and the people in the boat are in awe of what's just happened of god yeah. but there's some pretty significant differences as well so jonah's disobedience is what causes the storm Jesus isn't disobedient, and he doesn't cause a storm. So, and it's God's discipline of Jonah that actually steals the storm. And when the captain tells Jonah to pray, is to pray to his God. He doesn't pray to Jonah. And Jesus actually commands the winds and the waves, where it's not Jonah who does so. And the fa- the sailors' fear and awe are directed towards jonah 's God, not to Jonah himself, so there's some significant differences there in type. however, a lot of the parables when we actually have a look at them there's, there's meaning behind them as we all know and there, in, in Matthew and in Luke both say that Jesus is something that there's something is greater than Jonah is here, meaning Jesus so Jesus Jonah spends three nights In the fish, preaches to Nineveh, and Nineveh is saved. Jesus spends three nights in the grave and preaches salvation, and the world is saved. There is something greater than Jonah here. Moving on. Jesus was asleep. It's quite significant, actually for two different reasons. So the first one Psalm 121, I actually don't have it for you, but let me just read it. verse 4 or verse 3. He will not allow you or your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The God of Israel, the God who keeps Israel, does not slumber. He does not sleep. The pagan gods sleep, but not the God of Israel. So why is Jesus asleep? Jesus is asleep because Mark is grounding who Jesus is in his full humanity. He's been preaching all day prophesying to harden hearts, and he's knackered. And so when we start to look at a story like this, Jesus being asleep actually grounds his humanity, that he is fully human and that he needs to rest. The second meaning that we can, significance that we can get out of this is that Jesus trusts and has faith completely in the Father's care. And so Psalm 3, Psalm 4, Proverbs 3 all look at someone who can sleep securely in the father's care, in complete trust. Psalm 3 verse 5 talks about David sleeping even though he's running from his son Absalom who's trying to kill him. And it is this depiction of this man who is just like, Man, I just trust you, God, and I'm happy to and I can sleep, no problems at all. So when we when we find a sleeping Jesus, that it it's the complete trust of who God is in the midst of adversity. And so when we start to look at that compared to the disciples being all fearful and really roused. You know, And they're going, you know, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? It's like they're terrified about that they're going to die. Now, remember, these are seasoned sailors. They don't know, know how a boat works. So the question that they use, though, is actually quite interesting. The language. So back in Mark chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. So Jesus so well, that's your go for 23. So there, just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out, saying, what business do you have with each other, Jesus, of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. So the the way that that is written and the language behind that is that the demon sees Jesus and there is an expectation that he can expel him. And he's not asking, can you? He's asking, are you going to? Which is the subtle difference. It's a major difference, but it's subtle. So the same verb that they use in verse chapter 1, verse 24, is the same verb that the disciples use here. When they ask Jesus to my page. Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Like, don't you care? Wake up. There's the expectation that in waking Jesus, that he can actually do something. And so when we start to look at the disciples in their hour of need, they're not there yet. But they are starting to get it, that there's something about this guy that we think that they can save us. When Jesus wakes and he rebukes the wind and and said to the sea, hush, be still. The Old Testament describes God as the Lord of creation who speaks to the sea and it obeys. Psalm 107 from verse 23. Those who go down to the, shi- the sea in the ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he has spoken and raised up a stormy wind, which he lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens, they went down in the depths. Their soul melted away, their misery. He reeled and staggered like a drunken man, and they were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to the desired haven. This narrative in Mark is pretty much like Narrative version of that poetic psalm. And so Jesus' words in this passage, hush, be still, are here portrayed, or the the, the sea is actually here portrayed as a demonic force. Just went back to Mark 1, verse 25, again, when Jesus rebuked the demon. And saying, be quiet and come out of him. Yet again, it's the same verb. So he's using the same language as he does in an exorcism. And so it's... And because Jesus uses this type of language, there's this this connotation that that he's muzzling the sea. And that... It's a, and the way that it's written, that it's not just be still, but it's be still and keep being still. That there's this persistent recurring so that it's not just a once, it's for all time. Yeah. And this language is more appropriate with demonic forces than it is of inanimate nature. Another view of Jesus' language is that God is the God of creation, and that Jesus, in his words, is speaking out, and that creation, as the servant, is immediately responding to its master's command. In the Old Testament, only God commands the wind and the waves. He alone possesses the power to quell a storm such as this. Yet Jesus speaks, and it obeys. And at his command, a great storm is replaced by a great calm. The ultimate purpose of this descriptive language is not simply that Jesus possesses divine sort of power and authority over nature. Its ultimate purpose is to show that Jesus can do what only God can do. And Jesus has the same power and authority as God. Do you know the person who's in your boat? I hope you're getting a picture of who he is. Almost done. Jesus then turns to his disciples and he rebukes them, saying, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? These are pretty much two rhetorical questions that he speaks of, or that he's speaking. And obviously, their fear of the storm's danger exposes their lack of faith in some way. But what do we mean here by faith? So, this story actually illustrates the very issue of the previous parables that we were from chapter 4, chapter four verse 3 to 32. That despite the kingdom of God not looking exactly like they expected, which is the presence of God's sovereign rule, is now in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. When Jesus says the kingdom of God looks like this, it looks like a mustard seed, but it's going to be something different. The disciples are looking at Jesus and seeing this, this man and going there's something amiss here the kingdom of God looks like this man but we're expecting all of this and so to have faith in this context is to recognize the kingdom of God breaking through the work and person of Jesus Christ and typically in Mark whenever the person and work of Jesus is highlighted so too his discipleship. So for Mark, the revelation of Jesus as God's Son is usually not an isolated incident that happens in a vacuum. There's usually people present. The self-disclosure usually occurs in the presence of insiders. And the purpose for that is so that they are able to hear that they are able to comprehend and that they are able to increase in faith. This miracle isn't about Jesus. This miracle isn't about the waves. This miracle is about the disciples and how they increase their faith and trust in who Christ is. This miracle is about us and how we read it and how it doesn't just turn into my life's a boat but it's knowing who the person who is in our boat. So if we thought the disciples were terrified of the storm, my version says, I don't know what the NIV says, but they became very much afraid. Afraid, Very much afraid is more afraid than just afraid. (laughs) And so their fear of the storm now becomes a really, really healthy fear of the divine, the the power and the awesome miracles that they're starting to experience with Jesus, the parables that Jesus has been telling them hasn't prepared them for this. they even though they're being taken aside and being told, this is actually what this means being able to see this awesome might of this miracle, they're like, we don't get it. Don't understand what's going on here. What is this kingdom of God that you speak? And the climactic question that the, Jesus, uh, that, that the disciples then ask is, who then is this? Which is pretty much, I think, one of the most important questions in this passage. Who then is this? This question is repeated in various forms throughout the rest of Mark's gospel. And the people usually wonder about Jesus' identity and they go, well, is he John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? Or is he one of the prophets? In chapter 8, Jesus even takes his disciples aside and say, well, who do they say that I am? And they pretty much say, "All well, they, they say that you're Elijah or you're John the Baptist or you're a pro- one of the prophets. And then Jesus turns to them and says, well, who do you, who do you say that I am do you recognise me and Peter in a moment of complete sacrifice says you're, you're the Messiah you're the Christ and when we start to look at the context of how that comes about it's not necessarily through divine revelation it's through exposure of miracles miracle after miracle after miracle that these disciples are being exposed to are then illuminating who this man is that they're with, that they're following, that they'll eventually die for. And the answer to the question, who is this man? We already know, as the readers, we're told in chapter one. Chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. In chapter 1, verse 11, and a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Now we know who it is it's Jesus, Son of God. But do we get it? That this is a God who can calm the waves? That this is a God who can heal the sick? that this is a God that whatever you're going through is Lord and Master over? Do we get it? In the narrative, the answer to this question gradually unfolds. And it's finally answered at the foot of the cross. In Mark 15, verse 39, a Roman soldier of all people, looks at Jesus at the foot of the cross and says truly this man was the son of God and then in 16 verse 6 when they're at the um, where Jesus had been laid and it's like he's not here he's risen it's in the resurrection that he's declared God the son of God With power, Romans one, chapter uh, chapter one, verse four. Jesus, who was declared the Son of God, with power by the resurrection of the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ is the God with power. The same power of God who created the, the. The earth, who calmed the seas at creation. And the question the disciples ask is a doorway to faith. If you're having questions about who Christ is, this is the perfect answer, this perfect question for you. Who is this? In this instance, God's nearness. In Jesus is not something reassuring, but something profoundly unsettling and terrifying. Not like man, we've just experienced something scary. Yet it produces the one question that makes faith possible. In the Exodus narrative, in Exodus fourteen, verse thirty-one. So, the Israelites have been saved. They've gone through the Red Sea. And verse 31 says, when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And they followed the Lord. So the question before the disciples and Mark's readers and us this morning is will their fear, will your fear lead you also to put your trust in God? Will your desperation in whatever circumstance that you have in life mean that you will act out of fear or that you will act out of faith? Do you know the person who is in your boat? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And we worship you. We worship you as the God who can calm the sea. We worship you as the God who can calm the storm. Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone in this room right now that they can and end up at the foot of the cross declaring that you are the Son of God and that they don't act out of desperation, fear and run away from you. But they are able to stand in your midst in trust, knowing that you love them Knowing that you care for them. Heavenly Father, I pray that those in this room today, if they haven't given their lives to God, if they don't know who Jesus is, that you speak to them now. And for those who have been Christians and followers of you their entire lives, Father, I pray that you give them a deeper understanding of the revelation of who you and your son are. Father, that they can be in the worst storm ever, yet trust who you are and trust in your providence, trust in your care, trust in your love. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name.